Oh, hello, Finky. What you know, Finky? How you doing up the old crowd today? Have you given them the business? Have you made the scene all the way? How are you doing with your old credit card? And your da da chi chi chi. Hello, Finky. Da da chi chi. Oh, hello there, gang. How are you, all you? Good morning, good evening, and good yesterday, and good tomorrow, my friends, my fellow victims. A satisfaction will be guaranteed on this program. Your money back, if not absolutely delighted, within ten days, no questions asked, and we will award you bliss and happiness on your signature only. And you know how good that is. Yes, you have tuned in to the Seven Keys of Golden Happiness Hour. They will be made available to you near the end of this program. Of course, we assume that many of you out there have been searching endlessly, have been searching throughout all of your time and existence for that great white light of truth and beauty, which lies at the end of the golden rainbow of existence. Hot dog. Well, tonight you may just find it. Send your name and address to Seven Golden Keys in care of this station. You must be over 21 and a registered art student. That's Box Six SJ Seven, Starlet, Hollywood, California. This important radio station once again considers signs of the times, straws in the world, and in the wind of reality. We have a note here, and again we would like to salute, as we always do, the great world of art. Tonight we are saluting pop art in one form or another. Miami, a circuit court jury today awarded a lady of West Palm Beach thirteen thousand dollars on her suit that an operation by a Miami plastic surgeon in 1959 had reduced her bust line by four inches, causing her to lose her fiance. Working on there, big there. Hit it there. Yes, we salute in the world of pop art this surgeon who did his little bit for the world of art in itself. Uh, the, by the way, the operation was a what they call a, well, it was a, a total overhaul. The lady was also in for a facelifting. She was 54 years old. She says she went in with a 42-inch bust, emerged with a 38, and now she's in trouble. Her fiance walked. <laughs> oh my God, where are we going? Look at up there, baby. <laughs> All right, now if you'll reset that, I kind of like that lady. She went in for what they call a major overhaul. Oh, here's another one here for those of you out there who are interested in the moving, hard, dynamic world of slob art. Hello, hello, test. Speaking of slob art,、uh, I saw that thing by the way. I did not notice that Judas Iscariot was as rotten as he is on that.、Uh, I saw a magnificent piece of slob art on Times Square, which is, by the way, where slob art can really be found. They had this、uh, this three-dimensional rendering, 
and the rendering has a little lard in it too, a three-dimensional rendering of Michelangelo's The Last Supper, and it was in color. The, the, the one you saw was in two. Startling real-life color. And uh, when you walked past it, you're supposed to move back and forth. See, not only did the eyes follow you, which, as you all know, is a big advantage in all artworks to have the eyes follow you. Not only did the eyes follow you, but as you walked past this thing done in magnificent polyethylene, the, the Judas Iscariot, his finger pointed at the Savior, just like that. He was fingering him. What a fink. Would you please bring that on there? We want to salute Pop Art. Makes a magnificent Christmas gift for the truly devout. I'll never forget one time on a radio station which shall go unnamed, I was saddled with doing the following commercial. Friends, during this period of Christmas and this yuletide spirit of giving, we would like to suggest a magnificent light lamp which is now available to you in the form of Rodin's Praying Hands. It can be available in green, pink, yellow, and other decorator shades and lights up quietly in the dark with a revolving forest fire lampshade that stands above these reverent hands. And bring it up here. Also is included the Lord's Prayer in a magnificent edition in gold leaf on a genuine autograph Roy A. Cuff wallet. That's that's uh, that's really dynamic stuff. Have you noticed that that uh, that uh, the the true slob art is is uh, oh it, it's much more than Campbell's soup cans. For example, we have a little note here, and uh, it says a perfect gift for any family or any friend. And I kind of like this one for those of you out there, handmade wind bonnets, all colors, metallic net, resin candles and holders, berry plaques for wall and table, half aprons, net, daughter and mother sets, uh, matching colors, kit for decorating tote baskets, resin painted grapes, leaves, and butterfly, toilet suit covers, toilet seat covers, Santa smiling on one side, hands over the face on the other. <laughs> Whither goest thou, oh mankind? Other gift suggestions now are sent to you as a public service of this station that realizes the busy man today or the busy woman or the busy child who has to take time off to think about his Christmas gifts is liable to be in trouble December 24th. And so, here is a suggestion for those of you who would like to do a little last-minute shopping. An executive desk with an assortment of built-ins, including tape recorder, TV, alarm clock, high-intensity light, pen and pencil set, calendar, wastebasket, and an electric outlet for quick shaves. Price, $1,295. And here's one I think that you all should think about seriously. An old, a leather-belted mink trench coat with epaulettes and a Christian Dior label. $6,000 for the man who really wants to go all the way at the newest and the biggest Broadway opening next season. And now, a special gift for the man who really has interesting and exotic tastes. A fine English-made replica of a full-grown Malayan elephant. 
moves at a lumbering gait of eight miles an hour with its battery-driven, hydraulically operated mechanism. You sit on its back, mahout fashion, to accelerate, steer, and brake. Plug the beast into an outlet to recharge. Cost $10,000 and is guaranteed for 24 months. <laughs> Oh, we're going, oh, we're going upward and forward. Hooray for the USA. It will wave and wave and wave by George. Hooray for the USA. And I'm singing pretty good tonight. <laughs> you know, speaking of slob art, one of the greatest examples I ever saw, and I'm still bugged that I did not make the move. You know, too often we miss the great opportunities in life that are presented to us. And, and uh, you learn this the hard way. And uh, a few years ago, I was at an auction. And it was out in Bucks County. And there are a lot of other you know, auction types, little old ladies with tennis shoes sitting around there. And they're, they're buying electrically operated, genuine 19th century pencil sharpeners and all that stuff. And, uh, and there was tremendous auction. And it was an auction that was being held on an estate. And this old coot, whoever he was, had collected all his great stuff. And now he had departed this mortal coil, and they were trying to do away with it and get rid of all this jazz. And the whole fantastic collection of stuff. And right in the middle of it all was an eight and one half foot high, magnificently detailed and lifelike statue of Babe Ruth. Now he's eight and a half feet high, but that isn't all. This Babe Ruth had his hat, his Yankee cap, and pants, and you know, the whole thing. He had big, the big number on the back. How many of you know what Babe Ruth's number was, the big number? What? That's better. I thought you said two first. No, no. Uh, how many of you know what Phil, Phil Rizzuto's number was? It was not two. Oh, no, Dad. <laughs> That's Frankie Corsetti's number. Come on. But uh, he's, uh, he's standing out there, Babe Ruth, and he was in color. And this magnificent millionaire apparently had been a real coot, you know, real nut on the Yankees, and particularly Babe Ruth or something during his days. And so he had this, he commissioned this statue. And the statue was eight and one-half feet high and in color. And apparently they worked from life because you see a little tobacco juice on his, on his chin, you know, and he'd been drinking. And all, you know how Babe Ruth was and the whole thing. And they had a little baggy look at him. And, and he was right at the peak of his career. This was when Babe Ruth was belting them out, you know, 50, 60 a year, no problem at all. But the auctioneer is standing up there at the platform, and he's got this auction going. He's selling antimacassas. Isn't that what they call them? Antimacassas? Antimacassas? Moohoos? And they had a tremendous collection of doilies. And it was the only collection of doilies. Now, now, I don't want to offend anyone, but there was a lot of shock. This was just before the period of slob art, obscenity art began to smash across the country. If you had this collection now, you'd really make it all the way. Now, he apparently had an aunt that uh, that nobody talked about, and uh, she passed away years before, but this old aunt was uh, had a few little rocks going, but I'm not so sure now when I think about it. Now, at this stage of the game, looking back, I suspect that uh, this aunt, whose name was Ethel, I remember right, uh, that this aunt really was a very early, extremely hip, either black comic, poet, or possibly a combination of all three. And her medium was the doily. 
this aunt had made, and uh, they apparently kept her in a room in this castle, which was out in Bucks County, in about 400 rooms. It was made out of genuine Sears Roebuck-type stone. It was a beautiful place, and it had all these plastic trees around it. I'm not kidding. <laughs> no matter what place it was. And they apparently kept her up in the, somewhere in the dungeon, someplace in this place. They didn't want her out. But what she did, she made doilies 24 hours a day, and it was the first collection of obscene doilies I've ever seen in my life. What those babies would bring on 3rd Avenue now, the mind boggles. Magnificent work. But I'm sitting there in the crowd, and if he brings these things out, see, and you could hear these little gasps of astonishment. <laughs> and quickly they took them away, and the sheriff says, no, these will not be on sale. I'd like to know where they are now. Have you ever seen a, an obscene doily? There is such, and I've seen it. Beautiful. It was all, it was a 19th century style. Little uh, little touch of Dickens thrown in there. Little courier knives. However, on the other hand, this Babe Ruth was standing in the yard, and all around it were pianos, old Steinways, and all the junk that accrues during a guy's lifetime. And there was Babe, eight and a half feet tall, towering over the crowd, and he had a Louisville Slugger. And it was a, cocked over his shoulder, this bat. And he was, you know how he stood, his, uh, his famous batting stance with his feet very close together, sort of just slightly tilted forward, almost completely upright, with the bat cocked. He held the bat way down at the end. He did not choke the bat up. And Babe was looking out over this crowd of elderly ladies with tennis shoes. Barry Goldwater fans to, a, to the last soul. And they're all sitting there surrounded by obscene doilies, and Babe just looked down over the crowd and uh, somehow <laughs> what a what a what a what a scene for an opening in a movie done in full color called Last Week in Downingtown. That's it. Very good, very good. Uh, speaking of slob, this is WOR friends in New York. Hey, that reminds me. Let's see, we've got the the Christmas fund, and if you uh, have a couple of dollars that you'd like to send in for the Christmas fund, you get it off to WOR Children's Christmas Fund, Box 710, New York, New York. That's Times Square Station, New York, New York, okay? And let's see, we have, oh, yeah, there will be a limelight show. I'll be down there, biggest life. Hey, you know, for for the first time in a long time, somebody... Uh, did you see what John Scott did? John Scott came up to me about a half an hour ago and says, You were very funny last Saturday night. Brought tears to my eyes. I didn't know that anybody in radio ever listened to the radio. But uh, nevertheless, uh, sat- speaking of, of the underground, Saturday night we will be at the limelight as big as a bird. And uh, don't please don't write here for tickets. We do not have, have tickets. There are no tickets involved in the limelight. You just get down there. It's down on Sheridan Square in the village, and uh, you got to have a got to have a reason. So let's see. We've done uh, you've done that. Oh yeah, I'm going to read this this little letter here. Would you please bring me a little of that uh, quiet American salute music? Very quietly there, Larry. Very good. Very good. This is a sad little letter. This is what's happening in America today, friends. It's a little letter, and it's been scrawled in a kid type scrawl. And he says, "Dear Shep." I go to J.P. Letard Junior High School, 143 in the Bronx. One day during lunch, I looked up in the lunchroom and saw the enclosed poster. Actually, I'm enclosing a copy of the poster. My first thought was, oh no, 
But there's one of us, another one of us in this stupid school. I almost fainted. I almost died. Can you imagine? I just stared at it. And my classmates looked at me and asked me why I was copying it. And who was Gene Shepard, Flick, Bruner, Schwartz, and Gasser? I just told them they wouldn't understand. They turned away, shaking their heads. I would just like to inform you that there are two of us in the J.P. Letard School, signed, I won't put the name on there, to protect the innocent, or actually the guilty in this case. And here's the poster. Some kid had stuck up on there. They're having an election there, apparently, at that school. Some kid had stuck up this poster, and it says, Vote the Truth Ticket. <laughs> Gene Shepard, running for principal of 143. Gasser, General Organization President. Flick, GO Vice President. Bruner, GO Secretary. Schwartz, GO Treasurer. Our motto of our party, in God we trust. All others pay cash. For truth, justice, beauty, and the American way of life, vote Shep all the way. <laughs> wow. And this kid, you know, says, oh, wow. Listen, I'm going to give you, all, all you kid types out there, you have an assignment. If you want to cause a little a little problem out there, I want I, every one of you kids, underground type kids, you know, you're living in a whole great, fantastic collection of yahoos who to a oh, man, listen, every night to Cousin Bruce, <laughs> I, I'll tell you what you want to do. Just put wherever you can in the school, John, or uh, on, the, on the bulletin board, just one single line. Just say, Flick lives. That's all. Say nothing. Flick lives. Just let it hang there. On those Clairol signs in the subway, you know, where it says only her hairdresser knows, you just write under there in simple, stark language, Flick lives. And kid, it's spelled F-L-I-C-K. Right? I want to have no smart kids. Oh, I can bring a little salute out there. <laughs> Watch the confusion. And, and, and within two weeks, there will be a politician named Fred W. Flick who will be running. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, speaking of uh, wild seas, you, you sit there, and, and how many times have you... Have you sat in in uh, in the barber shop or someplace or in the subway? You know, when you, when your mind is sort of half turned off and you're not really you, you're nothing. You're just this blob of silly putty, and you're just sitting there. It's got ears and feet, and you're sitting there, and life is just going on around you. And you pick up a paper and you look at it, and suddenly you look at things in an entirely you can't explain it quite how and why but in an entirely, almost objective, out-of-left-field, uh, multifaceted view. Just for an instant. you got to kill that. You gotta, that can get you into trouble. Uh, it's like sitting in a sales meeting, and all of a sudden you realize how silly it is. How silly all of it is. You just can't let that happen. That can get you in trouble. Like the other, would you please give me that little uh, Hogan Twanger music, little Hogan Twanger music. Now, here's here's a typical example of this one, of that kind of, what is it all about, world? I'm sitting in the in the uh, barbershop. See, a lot of times, I don't go to the barbershop to get a haircut. I just go to the barbershop to contemplate my navel. Sometimes I'm sitting there and and uh, got this Italian barber, and he's contemplating his navel. And I got this barber, he's an Italian, see, and he's always on the phone. 
and uh, he's constantly saying numbers over the phone. And and I and I've noticed that guys with black overcoats with the collars turned up keep coming in and going out. And one day I, <laughs> you know, he's on the phone all the time, and I ask him, I says, Hey Mario, what is it with the phone? And uh, he turns to me and says, uh, They are making a, a, how you say a, a, a appointments. I says, appointments for haircuts? How come I'm the only guy that ever is in here getting a haircut? He says, well, uh, they are making uh, appointments uh, for uh, Sunday. You don't come here. And another three guys came running in there with their coat collars turned up, and he's on the phone. They're talking about numbers. And I once heard a word. I don't know what that word is. Uh, maybe it's an Italian word. You might know it, Larry. You're an Italian. Uh, what does uh, Hialeah mean? What does that mean in Italian? Hialeah. They kept saying Hialeah. Some kind of numbers after that. Uh, Hialeah. I don't know. If, you know if, so I'm sitting there the other day. Sometimes life gets very difficult to understand, uh, particularly when you're involved in naval contemplation. That can be very difficult. Hey, there's a guy standing on a, on a reviewing stand watching all the boats go by, and they're tooting their whistles. Is he contemplating his naval, or is he... Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Here, I'm sitting there reading the papers, and, and uh, Mario, my barber, is over there on the phone, and these little guys keep scurrying in and out. There's one big fat lady with a paisley shawl that keeps coming in, and uh, she's uh, apparently a winner. Uh, but uh, would you please, uh, if you will, I'm sitting there. I'm reading the paper there, contemplating my navel, and the traffic is going by off and on outside. Mayor Lindsay's... Uh, Dedicating another Ed Sullivan Theater. This is our time. It's Slav Art and Action, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's all going on. This whole fantastic, uh, Galamafri, this, this, uh, this, this Hidalgo, this Shottish that we're involved in. And I, I see a picture of Mayor Lindsay dedicating the Ed Sullivan Theater. And I turn to the crash photos on page three. I love crash photos that are on page three. I enjoyed that a little bit. And then uh, I look back on page five. Newport, we're page five, where it always says, uh, Alderman Trapped in Love Nest, NAB 3. I like that. Those are good stories, and I read that a little bit. And then way down at the bottom was this little fascinating little piece of business here. I thought you would like to hear it. Nakatosa, Japan. Mrs. Hidemi Yamasaki was a plowed woman. The Japanese government licenses a limited number of restaurants to serve fugusto. Fugusto is prepared from the innards of the deadly poisonous blowfish, which all Japanese gloomies consider the finest dish. A tiny microscopic speck of the fish's poisonous plots, little tiny piece, Left after cleaning can kill an entire table full of diners. Mm. Wednesday night at Suo Kodayashi and Kiyoshi Ikasawa ate fugu stew at Mrs. Yamasaki's famous restaurant and dropped dead immediately. Mrs. Yamasaki instantly went back to kitchen and hanged herself committing harakiri. And tonight we salute Mrs. Yamasaki, a lady of principle. And I thought about that, you know. And uh, 
I'm thinking about contemplating the culture, seeing I'm uh, contemplating life and mankind and Mayor Lindsay dedicating the Ed Sullivan Theater. Oh, I say it's not going to be long before we're going to have the Flipper Theater. It's, you know, the whole, anybody, <laughs> whole thing. You, you know, that's going to be funny. Imagine people, that's a long-term project. Imagine people 45 years from now trying to figure out who Ed Sullivan was. They got this theater named the Ed Sullivan Theater, but they don't know who he was. And that's, you know, that's, uh, in fact, that not that happened not too long ago. I remember fame, you know, fame is a terribly fleeting thing. And uh, I'm sitting out there back of third base one day in Shea Stadium. And that was back in the days when Casey Stengel was operating the Mets. I mean, as much as you could operate that bunch of uh, Cracker Jacks and Chowder Heads. As a matter of fact, the Mets really in the in the baseball parlance are neither called Cracker Jacks or Chowder Heads. They're called Banjo Hitters and Rinky Dinks. If you really want to know what it's really called, a bunch of Banjo men. <laughs> and, uh, and so he's out there. And there's a crowd of guys from Florida come up, a bunch of booster types and a lot of guys wearing fezzes and other guys wearing swords and a bunch of lodge members from this town where the Mets rehearsed. You know, the Mets don't have spring training. They have rehearsal. They have spring out-of-town rehearsal. And uh, he's uh, the head man of this crowd is standing in front of the microphone. Now, you've been out in many an embarrassing moment out at the stadium or Shea Stadium, wherever it might be, when when a bunch of short, fat guys get out and give somebody a plaque, and nobody's listening, everybody's running around eating hot dogs, and uh, this guy gets on the PA system and he says, "I'm to Casey Stengel." That's uh, echo chamber. To Casey Stengel, we who represent the Rotary clubs, the Lions clubs, and the Associated clubs of the Declawed Eagles. And the beavers, the elks, the moose, and the penguins of the major cities in Florida want to announce today that we have renamed Miller Huggins Field Casey Stengel Field. And uh, let's give Casey Stengel a big hand. The crowd went ape, and Casey took off his hat. So said, thanks, and he walked away. Casey knows better than most that fame is a fleeting momentary thing. Miller Huggins Field was renamed Casey Stengel Field. Well, Miller Huggins was the Casey Stengel of an earlier period. <laughs> you know what I suggest to those guys who put up the Ed Sullivan Theater? Why don't you have a, a marquee where the letters are interchangeable? And... uh and, you know, because that that would prevent all that, you know, spending all that dough on the marquees. You know, marquees are expensive. Have you ever bought a marquee? They run a hell of a lot of dough. You know, it's not, not greasy kid stuff. And they bought all that big marquee down there. And I hope that they've made it so that the letters can be changed. Because, uh, you know, Johnny Carson, who knows, you know, tomorrow morning there may be another Johnny, another Mike, another Fred. The Johnny Carson thing would be kind of nice, kind of like that. Uh, the... Uh, no, 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 we can't. We couldn't even think of that. No, I was just thinking. The Alan Ludden Museum of Natural History. But the <laughs> he's got a little cereal. But, but but I'm sitting there in my in my uh, barber shop, contemplating my navel and thinking about this lady, uh, Mrs. Yamasaki, who uh, was serving the fugu dish there, and uh, she got a little of the uh, liver in there or something, and these two guys shuffled off their mortal coil. 
And I was I was thinking about that in connection with uh, the attitude that our world has about things like that. Can you imagine what would happen? I mean, you go to this restaurant, and your liver turns green immediately, and you fall over sideways, and uh, the chef comes out, and he takes a thirty-eight and puts it to his head and says, Anyone who doesn't like my Hungarian goulash, pow! And he's gone. We cannot contemplate this in our society. It wouldn't, wouldn't happen at all. The first thing that would happen, they'd say, he didn't get it here. He never ate it here. <laughs> I don't care. He, wouldn't, he didn't do it here. And that'd be the first thing. Five insurance men would descend on the scene and five lawyers. And uh, you know that big sign that says, uh, well, now there's, a, there's a sign over one of the department stores here in New York. It says, uh, well, what is it? It's, a, it's a, the sign about... Uh, Nobody but nobody undersells Macy's. Is that true? Have you ever put it to the test? That's right. I didn't think you had. But can you imagine? You buy this, uh, you know, you buy a purple widget somewhere. And you pay seven ninety five for it. You know, one of the new uh, transistor-operated widgets that they're especially putting out for Christmas this year. And you buy one for seven ninety five. You go to Macy's and you see it on the counter there. And in Macy's, it's nine forty two. And you call the manager and you says, I bought this for seven ninety five down at Blodgett's department store. And he takes one look at it and says, Oh no and he downs the cyanide that he carries with him. Nobody <laughs> But you see, we're different people, and that's not to say the Japanese are better or worse. They're just different. Very different. And so as I'm sitting there in my chair spinning around and contemplating the existence of life and, and uh, thinking about the scene, I realize that things which are transitory are really transitory. Like the time my old man. Now, you, you, these things come and go. The Christmas season always makes me think of great awards. Uh, you know that during this time of the year, there are many guys who are about to be given the mitten, only they don't know it. Oh yeah, Traditionally, in American business, the time to fire a guy is at Christmas time. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons for it, technically and financial. For, for example, uh, we all know that, uh, that there are things called Christmas bonuses. Well, if you lop Charlie's head off three days before Christmas, how can he come around sniveling for a bonus? I mean, being such an obvious klutz and a bomb that he got fired. So uh, right now, there are many guys out there who are a little bit worried Christmas is approaching. See? And uh, they know that the Christmas party is a traditional time of terrible tension. It is a religious ceremony that far transcends most ritualistic and truly codified, formalized religious ceremonies in 20th century American life. Because, you see, the Christmas party cuts across all isms. It cuts across all sects. The, the Methodist finds himself cheek by jowl with the Baptist, who finds himself cheek by jowl with the Seventh-day Adventist, who finds himself cheek by jowl with the Rosicrucians, cheek by jowl with the Spiritualists, cheek by jowl with the Mohammedan, and he's also jostling with the Catholic, all of them together, see, in one great horde around the eggnog, and they're all waiting to see what C.G. Bullard is going to cause to be wrought this year. And what hath God wrought? What has O'Neill brought to pass? And so, <laughs> the, the, the nervousness, you can feel it. Now, as we all know, the, uh, we know that, uh, that the Christmas party is also a traditional time for um, 
the mail room to really go ape. Uh, the this is this is the world of the of the oh yeah the uh, guys will go to the Christmas party and find themselves strangers amid this great jostling throng of tall thin girls with braces on their teeth from the steno pool, and it gets very dangerous. In fact, I remember one time seeing a little scene in a Christmas party. A little word of advice here, friends, that uh, did not go unnoticed. A large number of people were gathered at a Christmas party in a vast organization of which I was once but an infinitesimal part. And uh, they were all hanging around there drinking the eggnog and knocking down the scotch and the soup and, and uh, pinching the chicks in the corner and running and yelling in, the, you know, in their offices and out the whole thing. It's getting a little bit, a little bit uh, hairy there towards the end. When uh, they started to unwrap gifts, they were giving gifts, you see, to various guys in the departments. And... Uh, there was a gift that was given to the head of the personnel department. And uh, everybody's laughing and cheering. And uh, he stood up on the desk unwrapping his package. It's wrapped up with Santa Claus all over the front of it and little things and some big box. He opened this thing up and the crowd was all watching. And he read the card. Oh, say, isn't this? I didn't expect nothing like this. Oh, gee whiz, you guys are so great to me. It says, from the boys, from all the boys... To L. W. Snather in the personnel department. Merry Xmas. Uh, thank you, fellas. And he opens it up, and it was the longest, wickedest, evilest-looking Burmese assassin's dagger I ever saw in my life. He pulled this baby out and he held it up. He didn't know what it was at first. At first, he thought it was some kind of a very jazzy letter opener. He pulled this baby out, and it had a steel blade that from 30 feet out was capable of causing your skin to break out in thin, razor-like cuts. And it had a wiggly blade. And this baby was about 14 and a half inches long. I think they call it a Chris. <laughs> it's the kind of knife that the, that the decoits were always using in the Fu Manchu stories. He pulled this baby out and held it up in the in the light and and you could see the christmas tree revolving behind him and ding got cha cha the head on the tape recorder jingle all the way oh what fun you know the medley of christmas carols no well no well and he held it up and all the green lights and the purple lights and the blue lights and the little flickering angels and stars and all the little the little the little beautiful trinkets that were on the christmas tree reflected off this magnificent curved blade. He held it up. Well, for, his mind was befogged by drink, which is a sad condition for a personnel director to be in. Because, you see, he misses a lot of real opportunities to do some really creative firing on Christmas party night. And I must say that his mind was truly befogged. And he held this baby up and he says, Say, what is... This is so beautiful. What's this, gang? And there was a dead silence suddenly developed. A deadly, deadly silence developed over the crowd. And they all looked up there. And that, that assassin's blade glistened with the red lights and the green lights and the blue lights and the purple lights and the angels hanging from the little silver and golden horns of the Christmas tree. And we looked up at that moment of truth in the Christmas party. And the word went out through the crowd. Whose idea was that? Silence came back. <laughs> <laughs>
Who's I? Who did? Who gave that to that crumb? Silence came back from the echoing water cooler. But there wasn't a single man in the crowd that did not recognize the exquisite rightness of this gift. Well, before the night was out, the head of the personnel department had used it four times. He'd excised the liver and the pancreas and the light of life from four of the men that had bought that gift. Once a personnel director, always a personnel director. That personnel director shall find weapons to do his evil work. And so lest well out the fellow victims. As you contemplate the golden eye of Buddha, looking out over the vast, undulating, nothingness and oneness and allness of eternity. Everywhere lies the enigma. Everywhere the enigma grows and flowers. For a vast conundrum of life constantly confronts man at every turn. And so as you assume a lotus position before, looking upward lying on your seal-test mattress, as all the time lock and low comes from walls, contemplate, consider, muse upon the thingness of all things. And remember, remember the words of the greatest sage of them all. Life is a chocolate milkshake. I ask you, as you clap hands, does a man clapping one hand contemplate only half of time? Or is it conceivably possible that snapping one's finger underwater is the ultimate statement of the knot of Gordian truth? I know many questions remain unanswered, as so is always true. As fact, the question is only the real statement of the eventual maze, the great Victorian maze, upon which entering the long, curved corridor of time, find only at end, at end, find only transistorized six-tube Japanese radio, playing time signal and giving weather conditions somewhere and always giving 20 seconds of news on hour. And even now, great, vast silver chariot booming over Dalian, Connecticut, bearing Mercury, ready to hurl lightning bolt at Westchester County. And so tonight we must we must all look deep within ourselves to find out if whether soul is, as has been said, by many oriental sages, particularly from East Hobart, Indiana. Soul is but creamed cabbage. Must consider eventuality. 
must keep mind open to all exigencies. Or perhaps so has been said by one man who came from Lastinac, New Jersey, and written upon subway wall, 23rd Street Station. Himalasai, Seoul is Channel 7 at 9 p.m. Third rerun. Have you ever considered the Rosicrucian case? Oh, must keep mind open always. Have you ever considered that you could have perhaps one time at one last moment of eternity have once existed before? And you at one time were actually one of Santa's helpers? Could very well. And so as we consult the great glowing mushroom of eternity and questions, we know that eventually truth will out. Truth. And so tonight we in our own little way would like to salute Ed Sullivan Theater. Mayor Lindsay, first pop art mayor. No. Oh, please do not. That's much better. Let's sing it out, baby. Man who sing, always man who keening at moon. And man upon keening at moon is accompanied only by his own shadow hazy echo. And the sick gold silver blue light of the reflected moon upon the undulating pool of consideration echoes back only one Italian barber calling on Flint's phone and speaking enigmatic numbers collected to the magic place Hialeah. I thought you'd kind of like to know how it is out there, gang. Just keep your knees loose. Keep your eyes open. And, uh, like they say in the infantry, give them, you know, what's a low silhouette. That's right. Keep everything low and move slow and easy down there among the roots. That's right. Don't, uh, you know, I don't have to tell you. You've gotten this far. You must know something. 